This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Coming up on today's show, price of gas is through the roof and everybody's blaming somebody. We're also going to talk about why being Instagrammable is becoming the cost of doing business to get ahead these days. And a rare Galapagos giant tortoise that people thought was extinct has been found alive and well. First time in my, well, I don't know if it's my life because I have driven pickup trucks and stuff like that where it's happened, but first time not driving a great big truck where I have put $100 worth of gas into my vehicle. It's a V6 SUV like everybody on the planet drives these days. And, um, you know, when you go to the gas pump and it tells you 50, 75, 100, whatever you want, I thought, usually I'll hit 50, maybe 75. And I thought today or on the weekend, I thought, you know what, I'll push 100 this time because last time I got gas cost me over 90 bucks. So... Okay, I'll push, I'll push the 100. Well, I hit the 100, and it stopped. I don't know how much farther I could have gone. Not much, I don't think. Um, but holy cow, I think the price of gas, and that was with a $0.04 cent off, like it was at the Safeway where you get the $0.04 cent off thing. So, I mean, good Lord, if I didn't have that. Anyway, you know, you know the deal. I mean, we know what's going on with the price of gas. Now, everybody has an idea or an opinion or whatever on where we should be focusing our outrage every time we fill up. Carbon tax is a very popular target in Alberta, as you know. Um, well, that's 11 cents on the dollar ninety. Okay, fair enough. It's 11 cents. Uh, the federal government, under intense pressure to do stuff with gasoline taxes and GST on fuel and all the rest of that stuff, so far they haven't done anything. Uh, and then there are those who've decided to put the pressure and the onus on oil and gas companies to give back uh, some of the profits that they're seeing right now. Is that a good idea? There's a, there's a school of thought out there that, yes, they're making off like bandits. It's not fair. And um, they should be offering some relief. Our next guest says, yeah, that might not be the best idea. We're going to chat with Donna Kennedy-Glenz, who is Alberta's former Associate Minister of Electricity and Renewable Energy and the author of Teaching the Dinosaur to Dance, Moving Beyond Business as Usual. Uh, Donna, thanks for joining us again. Always nice to chat. Oh, great to hear from you, Shay. It's a pretty tough topic you're exploring this morning. It really is, and I think it, it hits all of us. And like I say, everybody's got a thought or an opinion. And you know what? Like I said, if you take a look around the world... Um, Oil and gas companies are being targeted in some locations. The UK has brought in a, a windfall tax of, of 25%. Joe Biden went after Exxon last week saying, hey, stop with the share buyback, start giving some relief to the consumer. So there are definitely places where the finger's being pointed at oil and gas. Is it wrongheaded to focus on these companies that really are doing quite well right now? It, it's understandable. The frustration is r- legitimate. Like you talk about filling up your tank, and it, it cost me $125 to fill up my SUV yeah. last week. It, it was shocking. I, I was shocked. I live in Calgary, and I should be happy because it's you know generating right. income for the province, and people are getting jobs. But it was still sticker shock, and and there is a sense of oh my god, what do I do? It's it's understandable that people point fingers because they want a f- solution. And it's really frustrating 
that there isn't a solution. Uh, in uh, Petrobras CEO down in Brazil just got fired uh, today uh, because he wanted to raise the, the, their company wanted to raise the price of petrol in Brazil. And politicians, I was the minister for a while in electricity, politicians know that when electricity prices go up or gasoline prices go up, their elect elector electro Oh, electability. Is that the word you're after? That word. That's the word (laughs) I'm after. Is very much at risk. It's a big election issue. Nobody wants to be the minister of electricity. I can assure you of that. So it's kind of a people know that, you know, politicians know they've got to do something. And at least they've got to look like they're doing something. And in Canada, in Alberta, it's good to see that we've got some fuel price rebates. We've got people keeping eyes on competition. We don't have that many refineries. Those are, you know, we, we don't have uh, that many pipes. We've got a limited, com- you know, ability to deal with that commodity, the same in the U.S. So good scrutiny on those things so that people aren't gouging, companies aren't gouging. It's important to look at those things. I'm not suggesting that for a minute we don't go after companies who abuse that, but Right now, to say, you know, that some of the language that's being used in this anti-gouging legislation being passed in the United States, it's, you know, big oil is evil. Um, How helpful is that as your starting point? It's just uh, big oil went without for a while. They didn't make a lot of money. Now they're making money like crazy. Is it a windfall? The legislation that was passed in the U.K. was very carefully articulated articulated so that people could see that, you know, you didn't do anything to earn that. It truly is a windfall. So there is an argument to be made, but if you're an investor in those businesses and all of a sudden the upside gets taken away um, through no fault of your own, it's a tough, it's a very tough question. And now Biden's talking about putting a 10, 10% tax on share buybacks uh, mm-hmm. by energy companies. So it's, it's a very wobbly time. And all I'm trying to say, Shay, is standing there and pointing fingers and demonizing the other side. The government's not doing yeah. enough. Companies aren't doing enough. It really it, it gives people the illusion that there is a fix. There is no easy fix here. We need all solutions. And I think in Canada, going to the feds and saying, you know, what about those fuel tax rebates? What about GST? Yeah. Um, and of course, carbon taxes has been on the table for a while. Consumers need relief. But thank God we live in a country where we actually have the energy, Shay. Yeah, yeah. People in, Germ- in Europe now are going back to coal. Wow. Donna, not only, I mean, it, it gives the illusion that there's an easy fix here, which, as we're starting to find out, there, there clearly isn't. But when you also, and some of the legislation and, and some of our political leaders in this country, as you say, have been talking about gouging which really demonizes an industry where you better damn well have some evidence of some shenanigans going on, right? I mean, if it's just business cycles and this is the way that it works, um, that's business cycles and the way that it works. There's no wrongdoing there where you can actually say somebody's gouging. Exactly. I I think we need to pay attention and we've got watchdogs who can pay attention to the price of gasoline. Why does it go up in certain places? Why does it go up overnight? We know those questions and we can go back and look at the refineries. Was there an outage? Can we reschedule that outage? Let's really, really, really make sure that we're working hard to keep supply as steady as we possibly can. Of course, we want to do those things. 
But to say that the whole industry is evil, um, big oil companies are ripping off Americans and pocketing record profits for CEOs and shareholders. Like, that kind of language as the precursor to an investigation on gouging uh, just sets the tone for a... For no conversation, frankly. What about, you know, the fact that we talk so much about investment in oil and gas, especially here in Alberta, and the things that are done to scare it away, to chase it away, and the things that are done to attract it. When you have this uh, an attack, I mean, I guess in some cases, on the oil and gas industry and this sort of finger-pointing and blaming oil and gas, what does that do for investment, for growth, for the industry itself? I think it's a tricky thing. A lot of the inv- I talk to a lot of the investors in oil and gas to see what their take is on all of this, not just in Canada, but a- around the world. And and some of them are just saying, you know what, it's short-term investment. I'm going to ride this out. I-, I can live with this. I talk a lot to people who are invested in the oil sands because that, I mean, you've got a, not only do you have a cap on carbon on the oil sands, but then you've got the feds, our federal government now saying, we're going to put some sort of cap on oil and gas emissions. And how is that going to affect oil and gas. There is a lot of uncertainty right now, and I think the, the investors in that sector really do understand that there's high risk. What I think it's doing is scaring away non-Canadians. Like a lot of, look at the oil sands again in particular, a lot of Europeans, a lot of uh, Asians are leaving that marketplace because they just say there's just too much uncertainty. We can't figure it out. And so they do heavy, heavy discounts on it. So it's two things, the, the shareholders and then the, the energy investors, the companies that are going to go in and explore. I mean, we're not doing much exploring in Canada anymore. We're doing a lot of production. And in and, and the oil sense, almost looks like manufacturing. It, it's a very big change up. I've worked in the sector for over 30 years, and these are massive, massive changes that will be with us for a long time. Are we looking at the wrong thing here? I mean, the price of the pump, like you say, it shocked you, it shocked me, I'm getting text. So, I mean, this is where it sort of becomes reality for for all of us, right? But should we be a little more focused on what got us here? What are the factors contributing to this? Because in the end, they could be far more important than what we're paying at the pump. I totally agree with you, Shay. And sometimes when you can take a breath and think about... If I lived in Italy or, you know, we lived in Europe, what, what would that look like? If you were Germany and a country that looked at the Fukushima um, nuclear disaster and said, okay, no more nuclear, yeah. and said, we're going to do renewables, invest everything we've got in renewables, cut off the coal, and then have this happen. I mean, they've cut, they're, they're going to get cut off from oil and natural gas from Russia. They're stockpiling their natural gas now because they're worried about it, and they're going back to coal. Now, those are huge shifts, huge changes. I feel grateful that as Canadians, we have access to a wide range of energy resources, uh, renewables and non-renewables, and I'm not ever discounting the importance of, of climate change or the need to change and evolve in that direction, but the energy transition is such a tortured pathway for some countries we are really really fortunate and i know that's not what you think when you're putting your credit that's card right. in yeah. and saying 125 bucks for this you know fuel tank to be filled but honestly that that is the bottom line it's we're really fortunate and there you know wars happen because people don't have energy look at world war ii and japan i mean it, it's we're on a bit of a 
precipice, and I think we really need to pay attention to that. We don't have gas rationing here, and I don't think we're going to. But my God, there are people in the West who will have to experience that. And there are people around the world who deal with it all the time. So I'm not saying pay anything for it. We need to be very disciplined, very intentional, and do the best we can. And maybe it means we need more refineries. Maybe it means we we need to invest in some of this infrastructure that we've been loath to invest in and just diversify, um, making sure we have options. And I think it's about building options. Okay. Uh, Great discussion, Donna. Thank you so much for your time again. I appreciate you joining us. Thank you for having me, Shay. I appreciate it. That is Donna Kennedy-Glanz, who is Alberta's former Associate Minister of Electricity and Renewable Energy and author of Teaching the Dinosaur to Dance, Moving Beyond Business as Usual. And, you know, I mean, she had a lot of you on the text line making the point, you know, well, where was all these people worried about, you know, regulating um, how oil companies are doing back when, you know, they couldn't sell oil. It was selling in negative territory. And that wasn't that long ago. That was under Jason Kenney. That was like three years ago, something like that. Um, You know, so, I mean, if you're in business where it's gone down and now it's come back, it's, I can understand why people are saying, well, why now, why are we suddenly pointing a picture, uh, pointing a finger at oil and gas companies? Because nobody seemed to care that they were really taking it on the chin a few years back. really interesting um I, i'm not on i am on instagram but if you check my profile i've posted there like three times in my life and once in the last five years like i'm not a big instagram guy. i'm very big on twitter i use that a lot I hate facebook won't use it um so that's basically where i am when it comes to social media i don't have the tiktok i don't have the snapchats none of that stuff just uh keep it very straight and simple um, but in, I, I know full well how powerful a force Instagram is and I know how big of a deal it is and it's becoming a bigger and bigger deal when it comes to people operating businesses to the point now where having a presence on Instagram or I, I would assume TikTok or whatever the case may be can really make a difference to how successful your business is. So to talk about that with us, we have Heather Thompson joining us now, who's the executive director of the University of Alberta's School of Retailing. Heather joins us now. Heather, have we got you? Yes. yes Excellent. Hi. Okay. Hi. Uh, Heather Thompson joining us, the executive director of the University of Alberta's School of Retailing. So when we're talking about being you know, Instagrammable, having an Instagram presence. What are we talking about here specifically? What are businesses doing to try and bolster that? I think when we think about the Instagrammable world, which is people kind of use that word in like quotations because it's a bit, it's a bit cheesy, but it's really important. We are so caught up and we're in this world of image and aesthetics and aesthetics matter. And so people are always on the hunt for taking those selfies, those cool pictures, you know, it's, it's a form of creativity. It's a form of artistic expression for a lot of people, especially younger demographics. And so businesses that are wanting to connect authentically with a lot of these users are doing things like this, like murals, cool walls, living art, those sorts of things where they're bringing in people for that experience and then hopefully purchasing a good or a service um, directly in a physical capacity or online through that platform. So have you seen examples where businesses that have either by good luck or really, really good planning and strategy come up with something that is a social media hit, be it an Instagram selfie, whatever the case may be, and it's really paid off for them? Yeah, I think, you know, definitely, especially when you start to see re- like uh, like chambers of commerce or business improvement areas do this together and they start to collaborate. Yeah. 
Um, this is where, like, for a really simple example, um, there's some murals where it, there's, like, wings that are drawn on the side of a building and someone can go and stand there um, and just, you know, get a picture. It looks like they have wings. There's this community in Ontario and they made their entire town ice cream. So they have, I think, at least four different ice cream parlors, but they also have their entire main street painted like cotton candy or like ice cream. And so they did this as an Instagram ploy for people to come and take pictures. Um, and as they do that, they just stay there and they spend money on the restaurants and lodging and different tourism sorts of things. So they definitely go hand in hand because it's not enough for businesses to just sell a product anymore. That world of distribution of just putting something up on the shelf or selling a product that doesn't work anymore. As consumers, we are just spoiled by choice and we want things to look great. We want things to be pretty. And if things are not nice and if there's no experiential element, we're not going to spend our money or our time there. And that's why there's such a large push for making things quote Instagrammable. Basically, what we're talking about here is finding a way to do your marketing, have other people Mm -hmm. do your marketing for you, right? Exactly. You know, Instagram, I believe, is the third largest platform in the world behind uh, Facebook and WhatsApp. And so there's different things. And we're talking a lot about the imagery because that's that's typically what Instagram is used for. But, you know, if people are taking pictures of a cool experience or a cool image, then you're right, they're tagging that photo, they're tagging friends, we're seeing a lot of things like a giveaway, right? So if an influencer wants to partner with a company and they're going to put out a product, they'll do a giveaway, which means, hey, if you like this page and tag a few of your friends, because then they'll see the page, this is a really effective means of marketing. And we're starting to see this take over um, for a lot of different channels. Is it primarily what we're talking about when, you know, and everyone I've spoken to and, and, you know, you're talking, you're talking about a main street, so it's a bit of an expansion, but it's still around ice cream. Is it primarily around um, bars, restaurants, things like that? You know, I think at the beginning it was, but we're starting to see this um, take place in every different thing. We're seeing it with dentist's office. We're seeing it. Really? Uh, oh, yeah. Like everyone's getting in on this and TikTok, you know, is coming around also really uh, quickly. I was just, the other day going to my TikTok just like on a random feed and a whole bunch of things are in terms of like medical aesthetics are coming up dental offices were coming up and it's just it's meant to add information it's meant to provide people this space where they can learn about products or services in a, in a little bit more of an authentic less sort of gimmicky sort of way so people feel like they're connecting with that business and then when they need a service or a product like that they'll have that business in mind so i think at first it's that inspiration quality in terms of the imagery but it's also that point of information that's a little bit less uh formal it's a little bit more um connecting with people on a one-on-one you know you can I think people, we hear this term a lot, oh, just DM me, which is direct message. Uh, and so we're starting to see that as a, instead of calling a business and asking a question, we're seeing a lot of people just go right through DMs, through social media. So this point of inspiration, information, and connectedness is really what's allowing people to start to purchase and use social media as a primary method for consuming goods and services. So if you're setting up a business or if you're operating a business, how important is this becoming? Mean, it sounds like in many ways it's almost as important as the product or service you're selling. 
100%. It doesn't matter what business you have. If you have an organization or business that a client is going to be involved at some point, you should have some sort of social media. Now, that doesn't mean you need to have every platform. In fact, I would recommend having the platform that makes sense for you. Um, so there's there's so many, you know, between TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, there's so many. And I would definitely recommend that you have something and you you take care of it. It's a lot of work. And I think people think social media is kind of an afterthought, but it's actually something that you need to spend a lot of time and resources to make sure it is it is perfect um, and that people are connecting with you. Crazy. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I know it's important. They always tell us that it's important here too. Um, but uh, I didn't realize it was having such a huge impact like this. I'm, I'm getting texts and, and, and tweets from people saying, oh yeah, this is, this is how it works for me too. So um, it, it's, it's, it's the wave of the future. Maybe it's, it's sort of like if you're, if you're getting into business, this is something you need to be well aware of and have a plan for then. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I would recommend that you reach out to, this is not your skill set. There's so many different ways you can reach out to different organizations. Your chambers of commerce is a really good one. Um, Here at the university, we have the digital economy program where students can do it for you. There are so many different ways that you can go about doing this. So you can focus on your business, but you do need to have these tools. It's really imperative now for maximum profitability. Excellent. Wow. Okay. Heather, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. That is Heather Thompson, who's the executive director of the University of Alberta School of Retailing. And I know in my business, I've been yelled at by bosses for years about not doing enough, not having enough of a social media presence, on and on and on it goes. Because uh, I know, I mean, it, it's, there's no question. Essentially what it is, it is, it's a way to go out and promote yourself and promote whatever it is you're doing. discussion here. This is going to be kind of interesting, I think. We're going to be talking to you about a giant tortoise that people thought were extinct but have now found out are not extinct. So uh, it should be a really interesting conversation. And to join us and tell us all about it, we have Dr. Evelyn Jensen, who's a lecturer in molecular ecology at Newcastle University. Dr. Jensen, part of an international team that sequenced this tortoise's genome to make this discovery. Dr. Jensen, thank you for joining us. Appreciate your time. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, so let's walk through this. We're talking about this species of tortoise. Now, is, is one of its common names really the fantastic giant tortoise? Yeah, it is. Tell us about this tortoise. Why is it a fantastic giant tortoise? Yeah, well, it's uh, native to the Galapagos Islands. So they're a group of volcanic islands off the coast of South America, about 1,000 kilometers into the Pacific Ocean. And uh, this group of islands has native species of giant tortoise and one particular island called Fernandina Island. Um, the species of tortoise there is actually called the fantastic giant tortoise. Now, this story actually starts like more than 100 years ago, right? With the original, what we Absolutely. thought was the last fantastic giant tortoise? Yeah. So back in the early 1900s, uh, the California Academy of Sciences had a big expedition to survey the Galapagos Islands. And while they were on Fernandina Island, they found just one tortoise. And they collected this for the museum and gave it the name uh, Chelonoidus fantasticus, or the fantastic giant tortoise. And so this one tortoise in 1906 was the only tortoise that had ever been found on this island until 2019 when a second tortoise was found. Okay, so 
when we talk about tortoises on Galapagos Island, I, I mean, I, I thought there was a bunch of them. Isn't there a whole species that just Galapagos tortoises? Like, what is the current state of tortoises there? Yeah, so there are a bunch of different islands um, that have always been separated because these are volcanic islands. So they're just uh, undersea volcanoes, basically, that are poking out of the water. Um, and so they're isolated, and there are tortoises that live on several of these islands, and each island has its own unique species. So you thought they were gone. You thought they were extinct. Who? Wh- how... The question I have is, why did you decide to investigate this tortoise further? It's based on more than just appearance, right? Well, yeah. So this particular island, Fernandina Island, you know, only one tortoise had ever been found on it. And so it was assumed that the species had gone extinct um, until I was actually a television program um, that goes to see if they can find extinct species. Um, They actually were successful and they did find this one other tortoise on this island um, and, and I mean, there had been rumors, but maybe there were still some tortoises alive. Um, but it was a big surprise when they actually found one. Now, to, to determine whether or not this actually was a giant fantastic or a fantastic giant tortoise, you had to do a lot of genetic testing, right? I mean, it's it. This was a pretty in-depth verification. Absolutely, yeah. So we know that the tortoise from 1906 was distinct from all of the other species right. of Galapagos tortoise. So then the question was whether this new tortoise was actually that same species native to the island, or maybe this tortoise actually was from somewhere else and had been, um, you know, sort of accidentally put on this island. And so we sequenced the genomes uh, to compare them to, and we found that, yep, this new tortoise, which they've actually named Fernanda. So Fernanda and the 1906 tortoise are genetically very similar and they are different from all of the other species of Galapagos tortoise. Now, Doctor, during COVID is when all this was happening. How, how much did that complicate the whole process of verifying the species of this animal? Oh, it held us up for years. So um, because their Galapagos tortoises are endangered species, we need special permits to move their um, blood or tissue samples around. And so... It took more than a year to get permits sorted out just because of delays with COVID and, you know, the government offices and things. So we were all just waiting anxiously for the blood to arrive in the lab so that we could sequence the genomes and find out, you know, what really is this tortoise. So, yeah, it was years of of waiting, but we are uh, excited that we've got very uh, conclusive results. Okay, so if she's 50... And the other one was found in 1906. You've got a pretty good big gap in there. Is it, is it safe to assume there might be other fantastic giant tortoises on this island? Yeah, I mean, we really hope so. So there must be some uh, parents, obviously, of Fernanda. Um, and there are signs that there could perhaps be some other tortoises on the island. It's not great evidence. They obviously haven't seen any other tortoises, but there are uh, perhaps some scat samples or places where the vegetation's been trampled in a way that suggests that there might be other tortoises on this island. And so there are more expeditions planned to survey the island to try and find any other tortoises if they exist. So how does that happen? I mean, now are you planning to to head out to this island and go, I don't know, crawling over the rocks and seeing if you can find more? Well, it won't be me. Um, The Galapagos National Park 
rangers are a very skilled group of individuals, and they're the ones that conduct these sorts of surveys. Um, I should say that Fernandina Island is an uninhabited island. It's uh, one of the largest, pristine, unexplored places in the world. Um, That said, it's very much an active volcano, and so it's not an easy task to go and (laughs) survey this island, crawling over, you know, uh, lava rocks, uh, trying to hike into these isolated patches that look like they could be tortoise habitat. Um, so it's real sort of adventure work, um, and it's conducted by the Galapagos National Park Rangers. Very interesting. Dr. Jensen, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you being with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. That is Dr. Whoops, I pushed the wrong button. I don't have to hang up on the phone call in here. That's Dr. Evelyn Jensen who is um, part of this research team and uh, an international research team that actually sequenced the tortoise's genome, the lead author of the study on findings published in the Journal of Communications Biology, if you do want to find more information. Pretty interesting story. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.